Welcome to Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy practitioner. I'm your host, Holly Waymont. I work for UT Health San Antonio's Department of Pediatrics. In this podcast, we explore how we can provide the best, most cutting-edge, compassionate care for children. We hope to give you a unique and behind-the-scenes edge from our expert guests. After listening, click on the link on this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. It's estimated that more than 600,000 children in the United States are substantiated victims of child abuse and neglect. Today on Pediatrics Now, that's what we're talking about. And joining me here today in the podcast studio is Dr. Natalie Kassoon. She went to medical school at the University of South Florida College of Medicine, residency at Children's Hospital National Medical Center in D.C., and her fellowship at Hasbro Children's Hospital. Dr. Kassoon is board certified in general pediatrics and in child abuse. Dr. Kassoon, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. This is a tough topic and one that pediatricians face. What would you like pediatricians to know? Remember that your job is to keep this child safe. Um, And so if you see something, say something. That's great advice. And that can be tough when they're seeing lots of patients. Say a nine-year-old girl is there in the waiting room with her mom who seems really nice and put together and um, and the, the nine-year-old has a bruise on her left ear. So I think this is a really good case to demonstrate and talk about what are some things that should make you concerned for physical abuse. Uh, so there are parts of the body that when we look at children overall in general, you don't get accidental injuries happening there in mobile children. And so those are the places that when you see injuries, it should prompt you to ask more questions and to consider child maltreatment. So I'm going to talk to you today about the 10 faces P rule. Uh, And so this is a mnemonic to help you remember what parts of the body that when you see injuries on mobile children, you should ask more questions and maybe consider child maltreatment or physical abuse. So the first part of that rule says that in a non-mobile infant, there should not be any bruises anywhere on the body unless there's a very specific, clear explanation for how that bruise happened. There isn't anything about a baby's skin or the way that you take care of a baby that should result in bruises, especially those who are not mobile. The next part of the rule is talking about children who are four and younger. So those are your young, nonverbal children who are now mobile. Uh, And so the parts of the body, we have 10 faces. So 10 stands for the torso, which includes the chest, the back, the genitals, and the buttocks, and the abdomen. E stands for ears. N stands for neck. Faces stands for frenulum, so thinking about looking inside the mouth to make sure you can see the soft palate, hard palate, all of your, uh, your mucosa, as well as those frenula that connect your lips to your gums and then your tongue to the floor of your mouth. Uh, you want to think about uh, the angle of the jaw, so just right uh, along the angle of your jaw. Um, C stands for your cheeks, so the soft part of your facial cheeks. 
E stands for your eyes. So that's your eyelids as well as um, your eyeballs. So the subconjunctival hemorrhage, which is S, is what you want to look for. So 10 faces. Those are the locations where kids don't commonly get injuries from accidental play. The reason those are the locations that kids don't commonly get injuries is because of um, those are usually the protected areas. When kids fall down, they usually put their hands out to protect themselves, so they're not typically impacting their chest uh, or their abdomen. Uh, when kids fall backwards, they tend to sit on their buttocks, uh, so they don't typically impact their back areas. Uh, when you fall over, if you hit like the side of your head, your ear is not typically impacted. You typically hit the top of your head or your shoulders. Uh, the same with your neck and the angle of your jaw. The soft parts of your body, like your cheeks, like your abdomen, which doesn't have any bony prominences to be hit against, it takes a lot more force to cause bruises there. And so we would not expect to see injuries there from a normal household fall. The same for the buttocks and the genitals. Especially in kids who are wearing diapers, uh, they are well-protected areas. They have a lot of soft cushion. Uh, and so they don't typically get injured with household uh, accidents. And is there anything else in terms of being injured by a common household item? So say if they were uh, burned by an iron or something like that that you want to talk about? So the P in 10 faces P stands for patterned. Now 10 faces P is really focused on bruises. Um, so if you have a bruise that is patterned, that is suggestive that an object impacted that part of the body. Typically when you have accidental injuries, uh, with an object, it doesn't usually an, uh, result in a pattern. Weird accidents can happen where you get injuries in these places or with a pattern. However, because it is uncommon, we don't start with the assumption that this was a weird accident. We consider that perhaps it's something else and we just need to gather more information. When it comes to something like a burn, again, um, there are different characteristics. So a burn in a pattern uh, might is obviously suggestive of an object touching that child's body, which can happen accidentally. And again, it's basic, it's getting gathering more information. So I think pediatricians should not be afraid to ask questions. Just because you're asking questions doesn't mean that you're accusing someone of hurting their child. It means that you're their pediatrician and you're trying to figure out what's going on. So you see an injury in a very non-judgmental, uh, objective way. Hey, what happened here? And ask questions so that you really understand what happened. And if what they're telling you makes sense with what you're seeing, then there you go. If you're not sure if what they're telling you makes sense with what you're seeing, if you live in a community where you have access to a child abuse pediatrician or a child protection team, you can reach out to your child abuse pediatrician and your child protection team and ask questions. Uh, they would be happy to answer questions uh, to help you make, a dis make the best decision possible. If you don't have access to one of those, the AAP has uh, very good clinical reports um, and technical reports regarding child maltreatment. I highly recommend that you review those so you have that information um, you recognize that information when uh, when some when a case does come up, and I'll put a link to that in the text for the podcast. Um, let's go back to that nine-year-old girl. So, 
she has a bruise on her left ear, go in, ask more questions? Correct. So the first thing I would do is ask what happened. Ideally, you want to ask the child the que- the questions without a caregiver present for many, many reasons. Again, because we have no idea what happened. There is a possibility that the caregiver who's in, in the room with the child is the person who caused that injury or knows how that injury occurred and has the child doesn't want to talk about it um, because of fear or because of worried about making that person upset. And so ideally, we would want to speak with the child alone without the caregiver present. And your job is not to interview the child and get all the deep nitty-gritty details. Your job is to ask some initial questions to find out, hey, what happened? And does that raise your concern for child maltreatment? You do not need to investigate and find all the answers, whether this is a child maltreatment or not. So for a child, I would say, hey, I see you have a, you know, this boo-boo or bruise on your ear. What happened there? They may or may not tell you, or they might tell you something, and then you sort of assess that to see if that mechanism makes any sense. Then I would talk with the parents separately again and say, hey, there was this bruise. Can you tell me what happened? Um, and then based on the information that you gather, that will help you decide what your level of concern is. Uh, it's the other thing I would recommend is doing a complete physical exam uh, to make sure that you see all of the skin and all of the body parts because you don't know what you don't know. And so if a child has one injury that's concerning for abuse, there is a potential that there are other injuries that are concerning for abuse. And so you want to um, ask those questions and do that exam so that you make sure that you're not missing anything. And for every injury that you find, you can ask, you know, hey, what happened? A good way to practice doing that just in general so it doesn't seem like it's forced for you or something that you don't do often, which can come across to parents when you talk with them, is for every visit that you do, if you see an injury, even if it's not in a concerning location, even if it's not concerning at all, simply, you know, a way to talk about it and let the child know that if they're you're here to talk to them about anything and everything. And so, you know, oftentimes when I'm doing checkups, I will see, you know, a scratch or a mosquito bite or a bruise on the knee. And I'll say, hey, how'd you get that? And the kid's like, oh, I fell down or, you know. So, again, just making it so that it's part of your routine and what you do so that when you do have to do that because you are concerned, it doesn't come across as being forced. And also it's part of what you always do. So it's your standard of practice. Um, And sometimes you might be surprised at what kids will tell you happened. What if, say, the parent or caregiver won't step out so you can talk to the child alone? Is that concerning? No, not necessarily. Um, it The behavior of the caregiver, um, it's really hard to interpret other people's behaviors. We don't know what else is going on in their lives. We don't know what their history has been. We don't. So we should not interpret someone's behavior as a sign of guilt or lying. I think it's important, you know, you ask, and if they say no, okay, that's fine. You can still ask, hey, bud, what happened to your ear? That's okay. And then you just know that their answer is tempered potentially by the presence of their caregiver. Or maybe it doesn't make a difference. Every situation is a little bit different. So say the nine-year-old girl says it's her stepdad who hit her. Then what do you do? 
So in that scenario, in that case, you have uh, several things that could be done. So one, you are concerned that someone inflicted an injury on uh, on this child. And so as a mandated reporter, you would need to make a report to Child Protective Services. The other, the other thing that you do is talk with the family. So this is something that is completely your choice. You do not have to uh, let a family know that you're calling Child Protective Services. I do recommend that you do let a family know because it's a a surprise that I would not, as myself, as a parent, would not want to have uh, showing up at my door. However, if you are concerned that telling this family that you are concerned and that you have to make a report to CPS is going to put the child in danger, yourself or your staff in danger, then you should not let the family know that you're making the report. However, if you are going to let the family know, Again, you want to have a very non-judgmental approach stating the things that you know. So this child has an injury in a location that's not typically injured accidentally. They're disclosing that someone caused this injury. And by law, my job, when I have a concern that someone hurt a child, I have to make a report to Child Protective Services. Again, in a very calm, non-judgmental way because you are not determining whether abuse or neglect has happened, you're simply saying, based on what I know, I am concerned and someone should do further investigation to find that out. And what if it's not as clear? What if, say, the child hesitates and it may be what she's not saying and you just have this gut feeling? I know there's there's concern that what if I'm wrong and then this patient, this family's not going to want to come back to me and I could be wrong. Sure, absolutely. You could be wrong or you could be right. And so if you are wrong, what has happened? That family has uh, gone through a, an, a, a process where they've had to speak to investigators. That process is not without its own stressors. Um, however, the alternative of not making a report and not having someone figure out what's going on is that that child is back in an environment where they might get hurt again and might get hurt worse than they were the last time. So I know you work with an incredible team at the Center for Miracles, and I'm, I'm so impressed and just honored to be talking to you today. And you've, you all help so many children. Can you tell us about your team? Yes, sure. So we're at the Center for Miracles in San Antonio, Texas, and we have a team of child abuse pediatricians. We're also a fellowship training site, so we have a child abuse pediatric fellows. Uh, part of our team, we have a SANE nurse, we have social workers, uh, we have incredible front desk staff um, and administrative assistants and project coordinators, as well as uh, counselors who see our patients. And any pediatric practitioner or a team member from a clinic could call the number for the Center for Miracles and get a hold of a pediatrician? Co correct. In San Antonio and the surrounding areas, uh, if you uh, have a question regarding child maltreatment, you can absolutely call the Center for Miracles. We are There is a child abuse pediatrician uh, available 24-7 to answer questions. And if you call our main number, you will... Uh, 
you will be you can be directed to get in touch with our on-call person. And we'll put that number in the text for this podcast as well. April is Child Abuse Awareness Month, and consent is a focus. One of the organizations that uh, work, that coordinate a lot of effort for this month, um, their hashtag is Silence Ends Here. And so on April 7th, they're asking uh, for everyone to wear blue and uh, post on social media with the hashtag um, Silence Ends Here. The American Academy of Pediatrics are... um, are, um, Focus is on consent, um, and we've had some really great articles written by Dr. Shailen Nunau regarding um, that said that's talking about no means no, but only yes means yes. So again, that's to start conversations around uh, uh, consent and sexual abuse and sexual assault. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like, like what should we as as parents be saying to our children regarding that message? So I think it's really important from a, from a young age to teach children about body autonomy, that they are in charge of what happens to their bodies. They do not have to hug or kiss or touch someone that they don't want to. So sometimes this can be really hard. Um, with big extended families, there's lots of, you know, you haven't seen grandma in a long time. You want to give a hug. Grandma wants to hug the baby. And I, you know, and I completely understand and respect that. But we also have to respect the baby who, or the child who may not know grandma because they don't see grandma. So grandma is essentially a stranger. And so you're asking that child to hug a stranger and give control of themselves to someone that they don't really know. And so we want to encourage children, empower them to be in charge of their own bodies because that's the only way that we can really Uh, prevent child sexual abuse is that kids are able and empowered to say no to adults who are um, trying to control their movements and their bodies. Uh, The other thing that uh, parents can do is talk to children about body parts. So using the right, the correct anatomical names for body parts from all of their lives. Uh, That way, if a child does have something to tell you about something happening to their body, you can understand what they're telling you because they're using the appropriate words, appropriate body parts, so there can't be any confusion as to what they're saying. Is there a specific way you recommend to get that message across that you're in charge of your own body? I I think the biggest thing is by modeling and uh, teaching the children Uh, about their own, you know, about their bodies, as well as giving them the opportunities to say no uh, when they don't want something. So one thing that you can do in your home is, you know, if, you know, hugging and kissing. So you can ask, can I give you a kiss? And if your child says no, respect what they said. Don't show them disappointment. Don't show them hurt. Don't show them anger because they're not saying it because they're trying to hurt your feelings. They're saying it because they really might not want anybody to kiss them right now. Um, sometimes they might say it because they want to use exert some power, right? Mm-hmm. But again, if you let them know it, hey, it's okay if you don't want to have a kiss right now. We'll get, you know, 
maybe later, right? Also, you can teach them that they need to respect your body also uh, by talking about privacy when you're in the restroom or if they are hugging or tugging on your body, having a conversation with them about your own space and your body's space and how they, just like you are going to respect their body and their choices for their body, they need to respect your body and the choice of your body. So really modeling. Another thing you can do is supporting your child uh, in those interactions, especially with family members where someone might be encouraging hugs and kisses or touching that the child does not want to do. So supporting your child and saying, you know, letting your family know that it's okay if, you know, Johnny does not want to give you a hug right now, but he can wave at this time or give a fist bump or a high five um, because that's what he feels comfortable with and I support them. So showing your child that you support them in their choices to control what happens to their bodies. And it's important that they know they can tell you anything. Correct. So I think having these conversations about body parts makes it seem less as a secret topic and more of something that you can talk about. So I would encourage families to have conversations about body parts when a child wants to have conversation about body parts. I wouldn't um, make it seem like this is not something you should talk about. Those are words that you should not say. This is something we only talk about in the bathroom or in this place or in that place because kids come up and they're curious about things in weird different things. And so it's okay to talk about this. And the more we make it, we show them that we're okay with having these conversations, the more likely they are to come and tell you um, if something has happened to them. Can you tell me what inspired you to go into this field of pediatrics? I know it's got to be a challenging job. Do you want to share with us? So absolutely. This can be a very hard job. However, for me, the rewards of doing it is so much greater than any challenge that I, that I face in actually, you know, doing it. Uh, because the impact I can have in a child's life is really, really great. I can change the trajectory of, um, of where their life is headed. The aspect of this job that really I love the most is the teaching aspect of it. So doing things like this where I can provide education to other medical providers, to other community members, to parents, because I really love teaching. And uh, in this job, we get a huge opportunity to provide a lot of education. And I really, truly enjoy sharing that and demystifying some of these things um, so that we can, you know, help society as a whole get better and healthier. And Dr. Kassoon, what about sexually transmitted diseases? Do you want to talk about sexual abuse in general in children? Uh, so when it comes to thinking about sexual abuse, uh, there are very few things that are diagnostic of sexual abuse. So one thing is if, um, is if a child has a sexually transmitted infection outside of the neonatal period, um, and not as a teenager. So we're talking about a who potentially has consensual sexual activity. So we're talking about a prepubertal child with a sexually transmitted infection. Um, 
is most likely as a result of, of child sexual abuse. When we think about child sexual abuse, the only evidence um, we know that child sexual abuse has occurred in most cases is the disclosure of the child. Sometimes a disclosure, not sometimes, all the time, hearing a child's disclosure can be very emotionally um, taxing on the person hearing that. So one thing to remember is that that is a normal feeling. We all feel that way, even me working with these kids all the time, every time I hear a disclosure of sexual abuse, it's hard to hear. Um, but in the moment when that child is making that disclosure to you, it's really important to listen carefully, to empathize, to control your own emotions, and to let the child know that you believe them and that they are so brave for taking this step to tell someone that something has happened to them. And you all want pediatric practitioners to call you if they have any questions? Correct. So uh, here in San Antonio and the surrounding area, absolutely, we are available to, uh, like I said, 24-7 to answer questions. So if you have a patient in your office or after that patient has left, please give us a call and we will try to help in any way that we can. And even the practitioner could take some photos and send to you on the spot? Before they leave to go back correct. to wherever they're going? Yes, correct. So if, um, if you have the capability of taking photos when you have a concern for child maltreatment, uh, you do not need parental consent to take those photos. Again, you want to ensure that you're safe, the child's safe, your staff is safe, and then we have the capability of reviewing those photos and you know providing an opinion as to what our, our recommendations might be with the what we see in the photos. Our opinion is limited by the information that is available to us. Um, pictures speak, you know, a thousand words, and so you can describe to us what you're seeing, but seeing the picture with your description is always super helpful. And it's got to be so tough for the <clears throat> general pediatric practitioner where the parent or caregiver is likely on his or her best behavior there in the clinical setting. So that's got to be tough. So it can be. I mean, potentially. Again, I try and I think it's good practice to not judge anyone based on how they're behaving because we are only seeing people in a very small window of their lives. And it's the tiny window that they're letting us see. So we don't know what other things are going on. We don't truly know what's happening in their home. Even for families that you've known for a really long time, again, you only know them in this very small capacity. And so you want to remember that. And it's really hard. We all have biases. The only thing you can do is recognize what your biases are and then compensate for them, right? And so if you know that you have really strong, happy feelings about this family, recognize that you have those strong, happy feelings. It doesn't mean that when you, if you, you, but it doesn't mean that when you see a child with a concerning injury, that because you have these happy feelings, you can ignore that concerning injury or they'll tell you a history that doesn't really make sense, but because they're this great family, you're more willing to accept it, as opposed to a family that you don't have such good feelings about. 
and they come in and they have an injury that may or may not be concerning and they give you a history that is plausible but because of your feelings about the family in general that affects how you then process that information the only way that we can work on our biases and ensure that it's not playing a role is by recognizing that they exist and then making sure you know do that double think of making sure that hey am I thinking this because that's a really nice family or a really bad family or am I thinking this because objectively yeah no this totally makes sense any advice for the injuries that are that can't be seen, but s- say if a pediatric practitioner is talking to a teenager alone and she mentions that a, a parent or caregiver is slapping her, but she doesn't have any marks on her body? Uh, so those are really hard cases uh, because they don't have any injuries. Uh, depending, again, on the disclosure and the history that you have, you can always make a report to Child Protective Services. When you make a report to Child Protective Services, you no longer have any power as to what happens with that information. And I think sometimes that's really hard for pediatricians, especially if you have really strong feelings that something bad is happening and you want the Child Protective Services to intervene and do something and you feel like you've made a report and nothing is happening, they didn't even open it for investigation. That doesn't have any bearing on whether your feelings and your concerns are valid. Your feelings and concerns might very well be valid. We have to remember that Child Protective Services has their own rules and policies that determines how and when they are going to get involved in a family's life. And we do not have any control over what those rules and policies are. And so we have to... We have to continue to do our job to keep children safe regardless of what we think is going to happen because you do not actually know what's going to happen because you, you don't know all the rules and policies that CPS has in place. You also don't know what other information they might have about this family that we have no idea about that might be guiding the decisions that they make. So we shouldn't let what we think is going to happen or not happen affect our decisions to make reports if we are concerned that a child is being abused or neglected. And that might be a case to call the Center for Miracles? Absolutely. So if you have a question, again, when you call Center for Miracles, we will talk with you about your, your concerns. We'll talk about if it's an injury. We'll talk about mechanisms of injuries. We'll talk about whether the history that you've gathered seems to provide a mechanism to explain that injury or doesn't. We'll talk about whether that injury and that history is consistent with the child's age and development. Uh, We'll talk about any labs or imaging that needs to be done in the case of an injury. We'll talk about any, you know, photo documentation that that should be done. We'll talk about whether from based on what we know, a report, we would recommend a report to Child Protective Services um, or to law enforcement, uh, again, based on the information provided. We will never tell you not to make a report to CPS. Uh, so if you call us and you give us uh, some facts and we review it and we said, no, that all sounds really normal, uh, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't do anything further. And you're like, no, no, I still really, I am concerned. Absolutely make the report. If you are concerned, make a report to Child Protective Services um, because you're a mandated reporter and then 
will, you know, they will do what they're going to do with that information. And for our pediatric practitioner listeners outside of Texas, call the most cities have a center for miracles. It's called something else. <laughs> no, that's not true. Really? So uh, there are many places in the country that do not have child abuse pediatricians. We um, we are a small group of subspecialists. There are some places that only have one or two child abuse pediatricians for the entire state. Um, and so terrible. Um, most many children's hospital has a child protection team. Some of them do have child uh, abuse pediatricians, uh, but so you want to um, if find your local child abuse pediatrician if you can. So if you Google child abuse pediatrician in your state, um, you will get a list of who is available, and you can form a relationship with them. Or as we talked about before, the AAP has many uh, clinical reports uh, written regarding child maltreatment, so familiarizing yourself with those can be really helpful. So I highly recommend, uh, just like you do when you're looking at where you would send referrals for other types of subspecialists like oncology or cardiology, is that you look at what how your community handles cases of child maltreatment and where your subspecialists who treat those kinds of patients are. That way, when something does happen, you have that information ready at hand and ready to go. Because as a pediatrician or pediatric practitioner, you're going to see child abuse. Absolutely. So child abuse is very common. As uh, we talked about at the beginning of this segment, nationally, over 600,000 children are deemed victims of child maltreatment every year. And so we know that this is happening. It's very common. And we are going to see it. And we just need to know the signs to recognize it and then what to do once we do have a suspicion. And Dr. Kassoon, is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up that you would like the pediatric practitioner practitioner to know? No, I think just going back to what I said before, if you see something, say something. Dr. Natalie Kassoon, thank you so much for being here today on Pediatrics Now. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. I'm Holly Wayment. I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening.
remember why you are doing what you're doing. Your job is to keep kids healthy and safe. And part of that is to ensure um, that if you have a concern for child maltreatment is to report those concerns so that we can get the family the resources they need um, to be a stronger family.